I feel very sorry for the buyers out there right now being forced to put forth terms to tie up properties where they don't get the opportunity to inspect. They don't get the opportunity to have any kind of financing contingency. They have to move extremely fast and they have to be responsive to counter offers that may come back that are 10, 15% above the asking price. Coming out of it and truly being out of it are two different things. And by no means are we in the commercial real estate market out of the woods. This is the Language of Business, a podcast to inform and inspire entrepreneurs. Anyone thinking about a startup or a business pivot or just getting underway and looking for some help. Hear from experts who've been there and done that. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. As we slowly pull out of the pandemic, we see the real estate market going crazy. Homes at sky-high prices and going quickly well over asking. But it's different for buyers. There are very few listings. In commercial real estate, so many people are still working from home or on a hybrid schedule. Many companies are downsizing their offices. In this episode, Greg Stoller talks with residential and commercial real estate experts to get the picture. Here's Greg. Thank you, Don. When it comes to commercial real estate, people either love or hate the market. And these days, I'm not sure there's a lot to love. We're emerging from a pandemic, but of course the Fed has raised interest rates instantaneously to try and fight off inflation, and commercial rents are still taking their own sweet time reverting to pre-pandemic levels. That being said, there's always tomorrow. We're joined with Rick McCready from the Davis Companies, and welcome to the Language of Business. Hi, Greg. Rick, what are the commercial real estate trends that you're seeing post-pandemic? First of all, when the pandemic started, I think one of the things that happened most notable was that a near decade trend toward urbanization suddenly got flipped on its head. And that affected both office markets, residential markets, everything. People wanted to get out of the cities and wanted to get to greener spaces where they could be outside, where they no longer cared about commutes. They weren't going to get on public transportation. They weren't going into offices. So you found that the beneficiaries of that, including in our own business and our own portfolio, were office buildings that were in the suburbs that had fallen out of favor, but now they offered the things that a lot of businesses wanted. Another trend was that you saw a lot of money go into, it had already been going into, but it accelerated the vaccine development that was very public. A lot of money going into life sciences and biomanufacturing. And as a result, those people had to go to work. They had to be in their offices. And the infusion of capital and the occupancy, I think, triggered another trend, which was converting office buildings into lab spaces where the dimensions of the building permitted it. So you see a proliferation of lab and lab conversions, particularly in our market. And then the last thing would be this insatiable need for last mile distribution as a result of supply chain problems and people sitting at home and ordering like mad off of Amazon and other services to get deliveries tomorrow. So you saw Amazon very, very aggressively increase its foot along with other companies that distributed to both businesses and to residential homeowners. And what are you seeing in terms of residential trends? So again, it's an about face on urbanization. My wife sells houses and so I see this firsthand. There was a tremendous 
demand coming from people in the city to get to the suburbs, to get to places where they would have land and outdoor spaces. And again, no further concern about commuting, at least in the short instance. The other thing is you saw people relocating to both warmer climates, places like South Florida, Phoenix, other Sunbelt states, because they didn't have to go to work in New York or Boston anymore. And they suddenly realized that the quality of life was better. I think the other place that benefited was second home markets, because folks who typically would have to go into the city and could only use those homes maybe for the weekends, maybe only two weekends a month, were now living in the Hamptons, living in Nantucket, living in Palm Beach. And so you saw a huge demand for those homes. And as a result, housing prices in all of those locations went up, while at the same time, you had both apartments and for sale housing in downtown New York, in Boston, really suffering at the front end of the pandemic. In light of all of these trends, are there any now new development opportunities? Yes, I believe that one of the first ones was one I mentioned, which is locally here in the Boston, Cambridge area, there's been a lot of opportunity to develop or convert office buildings into life science properties. We've been developing life science facilities and you know, the space has been gobbled up and rents have continued to rise pretty dramatically. Whether that will continue, I mean, there's about 20 million square feet of supply coming in the next few years. It'll be interesting to see whether that gets absorbed. The other area where I think there's been real opportunity for development is residential and I would say office in the Sunbelt states that I referred to earlier. So you're seeing really no new office development of note that wasn't already on the books or underway pre-pandemic in cities like New York and Boston, but in Tampa, in Miami, in Phoenix, in Austin, you know, there's just cranes everywhere because those areas, there's so much growth going on. And when I say growth, it's population growth and it's also rent growth. I mean, dramatic rent growth. You're seeing in parts of South Florida and Phoenix, you've seen rent growth of 20 to 30% over the last year, in part because there isn't enough supply to meet the demand and just the desirability of being in those places. And then also developers are seeing what people want. They want more space and they want more outdoor space and they want a lot of amenities. Rick, you said earlier that the pandemic broke a 10-year streak. Do you see any of these trends as becoming permanent Or do you think permanent means only for another 10 years and then something else is going to happen? You know, that's an interesting question. I would say, one, on urbanization, we're already seeing a reversal of that. I mean, in the cities, if you look at New York, I was talking to a guy who converts office buildings into apartments in lower Manhattan. In 2020 and into 2021, his buildings, some of them were as low as 15, 20% occupancy. Today, He's fully occupied in all those buildings and his rents are 10% or more above the peaks in 2019. We're seeing very similar trend here in Boston where we saw a real fall off the cliff in terms of demand. And now uh, there's a scrambling, I would say, of people to buy uh, townhouse and condominium properties and rent apartments in downtown Boston. And it all happened extremely fast. As far as trends, I think that are going to continue, I think places in the Sunbelt states are going to continue to grow. That rank growth of 20, 30%, that's not going to continue. But I do think 
you will see more businesses and more individuals move to those locations during COVID. Rick, the Fed has raised and is on track to keep raising interest rates to fight off inflation. Traditionally, higher interest rates mean lower property values. But since you know about these rate hikes so far in advance, are their effects somewhat muted more than they normally would be for the average homeowner? I wouldn't say they're muted, but I would say, what does it mean as an investor in commercial real estate? For us, we don't necessarily correlate higher interest rates with lower values or a lack of demand. There are other factors. There's operating expenses, taxes, but most importantly, sentiment and perception about revenue growth. And if people feel like the revenue growth, the ability to push rents is there, it's amazing how much they'll overlook things like higher costs, higher interest rates. I don't see a direct correlation there from a commercial investor perspective. As far as the demand for housing, I do think there's more of a direct correlation. Something's got to give, right? If you're a buyer out there looking to buy a house and interest rates go up 100, 200, 300 basis points, you simply can afford less house. You can't afford the house you could have afforded if you were taking out a 70 or 80% mortgage at a significantly lower rate. So the question is, will that pent up buyer demand that we're still seeing today drive pricing despite the rise in interest rates? My guess is that you're going to start to see more inventory hit the market. You're going to see more of that pent up demand get met. And then you're gradually going to see the impact that the Fed is, I think, hoping for, which is that you'll at least see housing prices start to stabilize and not go up quite as rapidly as they have over the last couple of years. Leases tend to benefit the tenant more so than they do the landlord, and lease duration is certainly becoming shorter post-pandemic. Is that good or bad for everyone involved? Let's start with this. Shorter leases provide flexibility to landlords and tenants, and that's a good thing. Everybody likes flexibility. From a landlord's perspective, in a market of fast rent growth, you'll accept a shorter lease because you're going to be able to mark to market your rents faster. And you believe that the next guy buying from you, if you're a seller in the near term, will see the same thing. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. If you're holding for some period of time, ultimately impact exit values because you're selling less locked in long-term cash flows. And landlords also won't be willing to finance extensive tenant improvements in the spaces that they lease without some term to the lease. One of the things we see as a result is that landlords, and we do this, they're building out spec suites where they can control the tenant improvement expense and also the design so that if a tenant is coming in on a short-term basis, they're not building out a very bespoke space for the tenant. They're building something that's going to be easily leased to the next tenant if that tenant moves out you know, two years or three years. On the residential side, is it a good time to buy, sell, or hold? I feel very sorry for the buyers out there right now because I think they are facing very, very challenging circumstances, being forced to put forth terms to tie up properties where they don't get the opportunity to inspect. They don't get the opportunity to have any kind of financing contingency. They have to move extremely fast and they have to be responsive to counter offers that may come back that are 10, 15% above the asking price. 
If you're a seller, on the other hand, it's been an extraordinary time to market your home because I think that not only nice houses, but houses that would have been very challenged in other environments where there was more inventory on the market are selling at unbelievable prices. I don't know how long this will continue. I suspect that we've seen the top and it's going to start gliding down a bit. Rick, thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thank you. Rick McCready of the Davis Companies talking about commercial and residential real estate trends post-pandemic. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. We've heard the Boston and New York take on residential and commercial real estate. Next, we'll see what they're saying in D.C. when the language of business continues. I didn't even realize what it meant to be in a top tier business school until my first day. And I just really, for the first time, felt like I was in a place where everybody knew what was going on and everyone was incredibly driven to study this and perfect this field. And so I think being in a top business school really means that you are finding the barriers and the edges of the field and pushing them a little farther. And that's what Questrom has taught me over the past four years. The curriculum at Questrom is really helpful because you get to not only study the basics of business, such as accounting or marketing, but you really get to dive further in and to see applications of the health sector and how business applies to sustainability efforts around the world. They really want us to kind of focus it on four emerging areas, and those areas were healthcare, security, sustainability, and technology. Those are really where the jobs are going to be. They really want us to come out from the Question School of Business and, like I said, be able to work in any area of the industry. Interested? Go to bu.edu slash Westrom. You're listening to The Language of Business and our take on the state of real estate. Now we'll go to a place that would like to be a state, Washington, D.C. Back to Greg Stoller. Thank you, Don. A lot has changed in the commercial real estate business post-pandemic, and we welcome back to The Language of Business, Michael Goldman, for now the third time. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me, Greg. You're two blocks from the White House, so you are very much in the thick of it. What trends have you noticed in the past 12 months before the end of the pandemic and now that we're coming out of it? The first thing you notice is that there's traffic in the mornings, right? In the mornings and the evenings, there's traffic. So you start to realize that more and more people are going back to the office. You start to realize that wherever you're getting a sandwich or a salad every day for lunch starts to be a little bit more full. Finally, it feels rewarding. We've been back to the office now for almost a year and a half, and now everyone else is coming, and it's a great thing. And how about on the residential side? Are you noticing even more people in neighborhoods running around with their kids on a Saturday or Sunday morning? Yeah, everyone's been eager to just get out. You're seeing that more and more. I think the residential market is a different market altogether than the commercial side of things, but still notice that people are going to be home more often and they want to have better accommodations. When you joined us in the heart of the pandemic, you said leases were already changing in order to reflect that environment. Now that we're out of it, what has happened to those lease changes? The problem is leases are long-term commitments. And so commitments made in the middle of a pandemic that extend three years, five years, seven years, and now all of a sudden you're coming out of the pandemic, you can't all of a sudden start restructuring what was structured. So I think a couple of things. One, those that did those more aggressive deals are going to reap the benefit for multiple years. I also think that coming out of it and truly being out of it are two different things. And by no means are we in the commercial real estate market out of the woods. How so? 
you have people reevaluating their use of space, their size of space. It started with whether or not they even needed the space. So I think it's been a complete reevaluation process of, of how people function within the office, how often they're functioning within the office. And that's led to people still making the commitment to have an office, but it might be a slightly smaller office or it might have different accommodations for their employees within the office. You mentioned in preparation for this interview that you've been going to the office every day. Is that true for the rest of your team? I think probably 95% of our team has been back in the office since summer of 2020. It was something that as a company, we decided to come together and say, listen, we're going to be there. We're going to be together. We're going to have the right protocols and procedures in place. But again, we wanted to be there active every single day advising our clients. And so probably 90 to 95% of our staff is in every single day of the week. And is that for eight hours at a stretch? It was 12 to 14 hours. So I right. think now, yeah, you're talking about eight to 10, eight to 12 hour workday still. But I think people are saying, look, if I can work mornings on Fridays and get my Friday afternoon back, then now all of a sudden I have a two and a half day weekend, which is pretty nice. Where are you on the topic that's being debated inside and outside of corporate America that as of X date in 2022, companies are going to mandate that employees return to the office full-time. There's two perspectives, and it's important to understand the perspective of the employee and the perspective of the employer. And I think for a significant amount of time, some of us have been asking the question of who's in charge. From the standpoint of saying people need to get back and this is when they need to get back, if you look at a calendar year, there are not very many key dates between January and when the summer starts Memorial Day. And all of a sudden, Memorial Day happens and we're talking about Labor Day and the holidays. So I think a lot of folks said, look, we're going to look at the springtime and say, we want folks coming back sometime this spring so that we can have people back in the office prior to summer and what people normally do in the summer and maybe take off a little bit here or there. What innovations have you seen amongst your clients that are going to attract employees to want to return to the office? That, I think, is a great question. I think that it's being answered differently by every single client we have. But I think the main messaging is we want to give more. We as the employer want to give more to the employees. We want to give more from a quality of property standpoint, from a quality of space within the property standpoint. So I think you're talking about different types of accommodations from technological advances that people are making huge capital commitments to evolve their technology within the workplace, new furniture systems, which are big capital expenses that people are putting back into their spaces. But overall, it's the employer saying, we're going to give you a better workplace to come into. We want you committed to not only the company or the organization, but we want you committed to the home that is where this organization and company lives. You mentioned a few moments ago that people are assessing whether they even need an office or perhaps a smaller office. Do you ever see with all the latent demand that is piling up, the pendulum shifting the other way, that companies are actually going to be expanding their footprint if the pandemic is finally behind us permanently? It doesn't take a genius to see that during the pandemic, a lot of companies experienced growth. And I think that's a really important point to realize is a lot of folks said, listen, we're going to band together. Our company is experiencing growth. We're going to lean in on that. I think we've seen a number of our clients actually be in expansion mode over the last 24 months. Overall, you also look at giving more to the space. Well, that doesn't happen within a confined box. People have said, listen, if we're going to give more so that we can accommodate their employees, that may lead to expanded space. Michael, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Michael Goldman, the president of MGA and commercial real estate, two blocks from the White House. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. Support for the language of business is from Boston University Questrom School of Business. We're available wherever you get podcasts. 
or ask Alexa. Social media is by Jennifer Powell of the Excellent Writers Group. Music by Randy Barth of Osui Media. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio production, editing, and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.